Dr. Margot Roman was born in Miami, Florida. She attended the University of Florida for her undergraduate degree, then got her DVM from the Tuskegee University College of Veterinary Medicine in 1978. She did an externship at the Animal Medical Center in New York City and an internship at Angel Animal Medical Center in Boston after graduation. While in veterinary school, she was able to take the IVIS acupuncture course, so she was able to treat patients during her internship using acupuncture. Dr. Roman has extensive training in homeopathy as well as herbal medicine and chiropractic. In 2005, she was introduced to ozone therapy while looking for a new modality to treat her own horse. In 2012, she started the world's first fecal bank and has performed over 16,000 microbiome restorative therapy procedures. Dr. Roman founded the Main Street Animal Services in 1983 and practices there to this day. She is both a national and international speaker and has contributed to the text, Integrating Complementary Medicine into Veterinary Practice. In this conversation, Dr. Roman and I talk about her upbringing uh, and her various life challenges. As a woman applying to veterinary school in the 1970s, as an advocate for her own health, and as a holistic veterinarian challenging conventional thinking. We also discuss her upcoming webinars for CIVT. Please enjoy. Dr. Roman, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. Oh, well, thank you, Neil. This is really an important piece to record other veterinarians, uh, you know, their, their life stories in a way, um, but the reasons why they, they turn to doing integrative medicine because it hopefully will give and encourage other people interested in doing this, that these journeys are, are part of how we grow as veterinarians and become better doctors and better healers. I couldn't say it better. <laughs> so where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in Miami and uh, lived in Merritt Island for many years and then went to uh, the University of Florida uh, undergrad and then got into and worked in the animal science department and hoping that the veterinary school would be open for me to go to because as a, as a kid in, in elementary school, I heard veterinary school was going to be in Florida and found out that it didn't get there until many years after I had already gone to vet school. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I, I worked in the science department, veterinary science department, and I went to Tuskegee. So I, I went, when I applied to veterinary school, and these are really, this is an important component of understanding where women in this time were really struggling to even be looked at as candidates. And so when I was when I was wanting to be a veterinarian, I was completely discouraged by my my um, advisors that this is not a career for women. Do not choose it. There's very few vet schools. Women don't get in. There's token women. And basically, when I applied, when I you know went for an interview at Cornell, they basically said, you know, the chances of getting in here is like a snowball in Haiti. And they also told me that the only reason I wanted to go to vet school was to find a husband who was a veterinarian. And I was livid. I was so upset. I, I just cried. I could not believe that somebody would say that to me. But you know, many that was expected. Women just didn't practice. They, they, they would. The women, you know, not all of them. Some of them, you know, would have children and then they would stop practicing. But I, it wasn't the norm. I mean, I was so driven as a child to become a veterinarian. You know, and I worked at, at ten years of age, volunteering at a veterinary clinic and you know, watching surgery. And then I volunteered wherever I could. And, you know, the, I think I, when I was thinking about it last night, cause I was trying to think of what should I cover? You know, what was, why were you inspired to become a veterinarian and why were, you know, it was something that was driven internally, but it also was my father uh, who grew up at an orphanage and couldn't have a dog and was really very poorly treated. Um, you know, he, 
he, I don't know, he he said, you know, he would, I would find all these dogs and bring them home and they'd be all with mange or a broken leg and I would take care of them. And then he'd make me give them away to the shelter. And I was hysterical. I was just so upset. And my mom was talking to me last night and she said, because he, it just hurt him so much. It just brought up his childhood. Hmm. So he made me give up these dogs. So I had to fight my father to have a dog and, and, and really fight. And so I think it made me a fighter by having someone who, you know, you're saying, I just love this dog. Why can't I keep it? You can't have, so that has been really my uh, driving force is that if you see something that's really good and why can't you do it? And you're and the forces are saying, no, you can't. So same thing with, you can't be a veterinarian. And when I was in high school, you can't get into vet school. You can't, you know, do alternative medicine. You can't, you can't, you can't. And it's like, but these are beautiful things and I have every right to do what I think in my heart is the right thing. So it's, it's those kind of, you know, how does it make you a fighter? And I think it comes from childhood is how do you, you know, fight <laughs> and stand up. And so, you know, um, so one of the, the pieces, go ahead and you could ask your questions because I could keep talking for about four hours on this. No, so. I'm just interested. So what was vet school like for you then? Well, vet school was a fighting time too. Um, very much so. I went to Tuskegee. I was the only white student on campus, white woman on campus. There was one other uh, male student from my class. And, and I was Jewish and, you know, female in veterinary school. It was just a very, I was minority and a minority and a minority. I was just a yeah. real extreme minority. And it was hard. It was hard to, because it was a very racial time. Um, in Alabama, um, and I got injured in vet. And in, in, in before I got injured, it was it was a great experience. Then I got injured in veterinary school on an ambulatory call in my senior year, and a farmer was too cheap to put put in fencing, so he put five inch nails through planks all through this pen. So there were over a thousand nails in this pen, and the cow who was being treated by about fifteen students got loose, and I was the senior student getting the medication from the ambulatory unit. And the door was off the hinges with a hundred nails crossing the, 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 the crossbars. Yeah. And the cow started to charge. And I, I knew if she ran into me, she'd run me into those hundred nails. I moved to the side and she impaled me, you know, not purposely, was trying to get out, which she impaled herself on that wall, but Ugh. threw me against a fence and a five inch nail went through my back, hit my pericardium, hit my sternum. And I was impaled on the, on the thing and it's crying and all the guys in my class, you know, that's why women shouldn't be veterinarians. You're such babies. You're such babies. Long story short, nobody could diagnose it properly. I told them it was in my chest. Everybody said I pulled first, originally pulled a muscle. Then they said it was on my spleen. I fought with them and said, it's in my chest. I had seven doctors tell me I it was a fool to be my own doctor, that they knew exactly what was wrong with me. And I should just be quiet and let them do my splenectomy. I said, it's not in my spleen. It's like, I looked at the x-rays. I said, if that was a cat, it would be in his chest. If that was a dog, it would be, a, you're not a, you're not a, you know, anyway, they went and took my totally normal spleen out. <sighs> and if I had not done all the work that I had done, you know, in the summer before I had done a fellowship at Harvard in comparative pathology yeah. and Dr. Jones, who was the pathologist uh, who wrote Smith, Jones and Hunt, he yeah. was my advisor and his he, that summer is when I met my husband to be, but Dr. Jones, he basically said that, you know, if you, if you ever have any problems, I know where your parent, you know, I told where my parents live. He says, my best friend that at my, my best man at my wedding is a pathologist at this hospital in Florida, Citrus Memorial. 
Yeah. And I said, I'm not going to go to that hospital. And I end up there three months later. And the only person I know is this pathologist. And he got me the PATH report. And the doctors had lied. They said the spleen was huge. They had to take it out. It was totally normal. Uh, and then I had this thoracic surgery. And they, I kept telling them, I want, I want, a, ch- I want a chest tap. I want x-rays. They said, it's post-surgical pain. There's, you don't need a chest tap. And I, I literally was functioning on one third of a lung. And I screamed and as I, I was going to die, I didn't, I would have died that night. I know in my heart, I would have been gone. They end up tapping my chest, getting 1500 cc's of fluid off 1200, the second 500, the third accidentally gave me a pneumothorax that outlined this big mass. And they said, mm-hmm. um, you have a chondrosarcoma and you have three months to live. So get things in order. And I was in vet school at the time. And so it was just, you know, it was a, a, a experience that I had, but to backtrack that, yeah. I had been very fortunate to be the first woman to take the veterinary acupuncture course for IVIS in 1975. Yeah. And the veil of understanding and questioning what I was learning in veterinary school and what medicine was teaching me was so supported by Marvin Kane. And mm-hmm. I was just saying, I was talking to his daughter today. Yeah. And he has been, he was really such a pioneer and inspiration. And I want to honor all these different people on my journey that have, you know, have given me an example of standing up. And she mentioned to me in a story two days ago that the AVMA was, te- was threatened to take his license for doing acupuncture. Ugh. And he said, he said to the, the AVMA, I don't, I'm going to, I'm finding success with this. I'm not backing down. And he, and the whole family knew that he might just lose his license and have to find a different career. And so with people like that being your inspiration and you're saying, I have to stand up. I know, I know what's going on. Yeah. Why can't I, nobody listen, nobody will listen to me. These doctors had made their decision. I had this. And that's why I think I don't trust the medical profession Mm -hmm. uh, because they are fallible. They make mistakes. And if you can clearly see what's going on and they are just blinded by their prejudice of what they think it is, you cannot get them to look any other way. Yeah. So that has been a you know big factor in my motivation to keep trying different things and seeing success and then keep going after that. So did you have an idea what sort of medicine you wanted to practice after when you were in school? Um, I initially, you know, I, I always wanted to be a small animal practitioner. Yeah. But then after I lost my spleen uh, from that, I was told by uh, Brigham and Women's, Harvard, all these places you should not practice veterinary medicine because you will die from bacteria. You cannot, you can't, your immune system is compromised. You have a paralyzed diaphragm. You cannot be around animals. If you get sick, you're screwed. Um, so I lived on antibiotics for about seven years because um, oh, they told me if I, if I went off antibiotics and I got a, because uh, there's a bacteria that has a different name now, but it was called DF2. And it's an anaerobic rod that's found in dog saliva. And it's fatal to people with splenectomies. So I thought, I got to just live on, I'll be living on antibiotics. And I was sick all the time. I had angioedema. I was just ill all the time. And I get, but I wanted to practice. And I did my internship at Angel. Uh, Prior to that, I did an externship at the Animal Medical Center in 1976. And I did acupuncture there on a case that, so it was really the first time acupuncture was done at AMC yeah. and it was a dog that was crashing and I did GV26 and, you know, nobody knew what I was doing, but that story, that backstory, I, at an AHVMA co- SCAVMA conference in Illinois, um, they had a horse that went down during my, my first year in, in, um, 
at the AHVMA at the SCABMA meeting. Yeah. And someone treated this horse with acupuncture and nobody knew what to happen. I mean, I was sitting way in the bleachers and I, the horse died and they, they, someone came out and, and did the GV26 and the horse got up and I was like, what happened? So I didn't care about the lameness, you know, evaluation that they were doing. I just wanted to find, and I, nobody could tell me anything. And I heard mm. the word acupuncture and, um, you know, realized that it was being done in China. And that's when I, you know, explored and found Marvin Kane and Grady Young and, and really wanted to find more about acupuncture and what it could do. Yeah. So I'm, I'm bouncing all over the place, but getting into an internship at Angel and being able to uh, explore that and do my internship presentation on acupuncture, mm. you would have thought that they would have been intrigued. They basically said, we told you not to do it. And I said, you told me to find something else. You never said I couldn't do it. You said, because uh -huh. I, I mentioned I wanted to do it on pain management. And I was getting such 80% results better than any of the drugs that we had at the time. And I, I presented these cases and the, 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 the whole, they got so mad at me for doing it. I was like, but I'm getting, it. I, I, I said, I'm, I'm getting so much improvement. The people are willing to pay for it. It was done like a splint change when people would come in, they mm. bring their splint back in. I would do, yeah. put a piece of cardboard over the window and, and go in there and do all my stuff and then put the splint back on of the same splint, yeah. charge them for a splint change. And then they would go to the car, unwrap the foot, put it into a bag and then bring it in the next week. And we would do this. Do this. So I wasn't using any bandage material. I was using my own needles yeah. and I was charging them and the, they were paying for it and they were thrilled to have it done on their animals. So that, that sort of was my, you know, like standing up to, to the standard of care at mm -hmm. a large hospital. And um, so after I gave that lecture, uh, 20, and they insulted me and told me I was, shouldn't have do this and I should do this and I should. And uh, 20, I think it was 25 years later, I gave that same lecture at, at the AVMA conference. So, uh, you know, and it, so it was, it was validating, but still, yeah. it's still not used in any big way there. Um, and it's, it's sad because there's so many opportunities that clients just don't get because they think they're going to the best places like mm -hmm. the university, yeah. you know, like Tufts and like yeah. um, Angel, and they're not getting complete care. And it is so important for us to educate our students so that their mind is opened up from the beginning. And that's where I feel so, so much, you know, uh, a gratitude to that I was able to take the IVIS course while I was in veterinary school. Yeah. And so it was so important to do that, to open those blinders right away. And I think it saved my life, you know, because I mm -hmm. never would have questioned these doctors. You know, they were, <clears throat> they told me this and they said this and they said this and, and I would have been dead. And I, 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 and that's why I seem to sort of fight for my life often. And I'm still fighting now with other things we can get into, you know, standing up for integrative medicine. And, you know, the next incident, there's a bunch of other ones, but the next incident happened with my horse. Um, my horse, I rescued this horse from Florida. His name was Champ. And he actually belonged to a, a, a person who was taking care of him, couldn't take care of him. He had such severe allergies. He was heavy. He, she sent me pictures of him in a horse show. And when he came off the trailer, he was just covered with scabs and no hair. And I was like, this is not the same horse. And the guy who was shipping the horse <clears throat> was bringing um, horse, you know, horse at racetrack, you know, these gorgeous three-year-old, four-year-old thoroughbreds and this 16-year-old 
horse covered with scabs uh-huh. and said, you know, this is your horse. I said, no, no, I just got, got the horse. Right. And he goes, you're kidding me. He says, this, you got this horse. What are you doing? This is, this is a glue factory thing. You need to send this. So I was saying, you know, I, I doesn't look like the horse that I, I know it is the horse, but I, you know, he was worth his weight in gold. I learned so much from him. He was my, you know, my hero. I mean, he uh-huh. was just amazing. And I treated him holistically for about uh, six months and got all his hair back and got, he was jumping again in horse shows. My daughter was showing him. And then when he hit 20, he was 16 at that point, mm-hmm. he developed a cancer in his eye. And yeah. I had several clients that um, that I didn't do equine, but they had had squamous cell in the eye on their horses, had taken him to Tufts, and they took that third eyelid out. And within a year, they were dead. So I said, I'm going to treat it homeopathically. I'm going to treat it with all the stuff that I know. So for six years, he was managed you know, with the cancer in his eye. Okay. And then I was away for two months and he got he got it. It went into it went deeper, and the university said he would be dead in two in two and a half days, and he lived two and a half years, uh, jumping in horse shows. Yeah, and, by getting ozone, and that was my adventure in ozone. That I stood up, and the university treated me like a leper because I wouldn't put the horse to sleep. And even though I was showing him in jumping shows and and in Halloween costumes and you know <laughs> having a great time and just saying here's the here's the science I'm talking about, they weren't interested. And so I went to a lecture on the hazards of feeding raw food, why you should never feed raw diet, uh, that was sponsored by Hills and Perina yeah. um, at the university. And it was open to the public. And I called ahead and they said, bring whoever you want, please come. I go there and they threatened to arrest me. And I was like, you're kidding me. You're, I didn't do anything. I'm just here to listen. And um, I went with that case all the way to the Supreme Court of Massachusetts with the ACLU uh, between them treating my horse incorrectly and this, you know, telling me that he'd be dead in two days and he lived two and a half years. So the university doesn't like me. And I, you know, but I feel like if we don't stand up for these animals, who's going to ever stand up for them? If we don't give these students the veil of big pharma and all these different corporations picked up over their head, how are they going to um, get the information to be as open-minded and as broad to, to learn as many things as they can. And, and you have to, it's hard standing up. It is very expensive standing up. Yeah. Um, I've spent o- almost a million dollars of my, my own money defending myself uh, to stand up. And it is, but I, 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 you know, I realized it has made huge waves in changing things. Um, and so there are different ways of trying to change things. And I was hoping you could do it with, you know, kumbaya kind of stuff. But, you know, when you have the, the forces of a lot of financial support for, you know, big pharma and stuff, it is not always so easy to do that. So I don't know how much of this you want to put on the, on the podcast because we're trying to be, you know, trying to be collaborative. And I want to be collaborative. I totally would love them, you know, the big pharma to be investigating all microbiome, which they are, right? Yeah. And investigating ozone, which they are. So, um, you know, I, I can tell you wonderful stories of, of how these integrative modalities have changed animals' lives. And you see that, and the owners are so appreciative that somebody has gone out of their box and looked for something else to help those pets get better, because these are their family members. And, you, you know, you learn from the, your own animals and what I've learned from my animals and trying to figure out, you know, I can't let this one die. I love this dog. I love this horse. I love this cat. I am not going to let this animal go. 
And it's through that kind of, you know, struggle and insecurity that you have as a doctor to, but that you have to pick up another rock and you have to find another solution. And so that's where I'm very grateful to someone like Marvin Kane um, and Marty Goldstein and, you know, Tina Aiken and Judah Shoemaker and people that I have, you know, bounced ideas from and have built up over and figured out how to utilize medical ozone in a way that is even broader. Um, so now, you know, it's, it's inspiring to see these veterinarians utilizing some of these modalities that were so not available, um, you know, acupuncture, ozone, uh, and now microbiome. Yeah. And that's a, my big thing now is really trying to bring that into the mainstream uh, medical situation right now. And thank goodness, you know, conventional medicine is totally coming up with it. They, they, they think they created it. It's been the holistic vets that created and understood the microbiome and yeah. why it is so vital, you know, to, to building up the whole immune system and taking care of the health. What got you interested in ozone originally? Uh, my horse. So what happened was, um, you know, when I, when I was treating him with homeopathy and acupuncture and herbs and, and this tumor was still there, uh, Tina Aiken mentioned to me, uh, she said, why don't you do ozone? And I had, Marty Goldstein and I were in acupuncture class together in 75. So we knew each other from a long time and he was doing ozone, but I never really, I, I read it and I was like, it doesn't click with me. I didn't, you know, I didn't understand what it was, what it was about. And I don't think the science was there understanding the biochemistry of it yet. So, um, so I, 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 she said, get an ozone generator. And I got an ozone generator. I was giving it to him rectally and it was, you know, I take a bag, uh, you know, a thousand ml and I'd roll it up in a catheter and I'd hold his anus shut and he'd, he'd fart and I'd, it'd all go in my face and I would do it again and I would do it again. And so Judith Shoemaker said, Margo, do it intravenously, do direct IV ozone. Uh -huh. I thought I will kill my horse. I yeah. will, he will drop dead. I'm not, you know, I put him in the stanchion. I prep the neck for an hour, right. And uh -huh. you know, putting catheter in and rah, 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 doing all this stuff. And and, you know, when he was shaky, when, because I was so shaky myself, I thought, you know, he's picking up totally on me. I thought I'm killing him and he didn't, he survived. So I did a hundred, I think it was 132 intravenous ozone treatments on him over two and a half years. Wow. And after I would do it, he would be a little bit groggy that day. I wouldn't ride him that day. The next day he was like full of it. I mean, I could jump him. I could do all this stuff. So it was a miracle that he, yeah. and he kept going and going and going. So it was a learning curve on that. And, uh, and then I, then this guy, um, Alyle Hassel, who developed some of the glassware for making ozone, mm -hmm. encouraged me to try ozonated saline. And I had, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't yeah. know anyone was doing, you know, and I started doing ozonated saline. I thought, well, try it on this, try it on that, try it on that. It was like, oh my God, <laughs> this yeah. is even better than I thought. And I would just keep trying it using it for wounds, using it to flush ears, using it in surgery for, you know, infected peritonitis. And, it was just like this tool that was amazing. And so now um, it is really, you know, it's taken off and it's so, it's such a night, you know, with all the overuse of antibiotics and the resistance drains of antibiotics, we need a tool like this that actually kills viruses, kills bacteria, kills mycoplasms, kills yeast, and then floods the body with oxygen. You are not having this residue of, of Batril or, or clindamycin or doxycycline that is destroying the microbiome. And that's a real problem because that's the microbiome is 80% of our immune system and we have to cherish that. And so, you know, for so many years, 
I felt that the gut was so important. And so for 27 years with my dogs, my, I have five generations, I've been feeding them organic food. We live in a greenhouse that we built 40 years ago in a woods um, and trying to protect these dogs to say, how can I improve their health and not hurt them? And lo and behold, now they are the main donors for the United States. My four dogs, we, we pick up poop two or three times a day. It's processed into capsules and slurries. And, you know, to find that wholesome, whole food fed, organically raised dogs for five generations uh, is a rare bird. It's, you know, it's hard to find that. Oh, yeah. What have you been doing for yourself that you, you're so vital this far along in your career? What have I been doing myself? Um, I do a ozone. I yeah. take nutritional supplements. I do the Beamer now during COVID. Uh-huh. I've been totally virtual now since COVID because of my paralyzed diaphragm. Yeah, I have a hard time just breathing, let alone if I got something like COVID. So I, I completely isolate. Um, I, I, it's sad because I love having the owner and the dog in the room and, and, and being that. Now, now I have the owner, owner in the car, dog in the room. I have an echo with two technicians and one scribe, and we do this, do the cases like that. And, you know, it, there's, I, I'd like to get back into the clinic and, and be able to do it, not full time, because I, I, I'm doing so many other lectures and presentations and things like that. that um, and then I have a family issue right now, which I will appeal to all of you out there. Um, and this is just very sad from, it's really, you know, but I'm hoping my background will help. Uh, my granddaughter, who's 18 months old now, just got diagnosed with Rett syndrome, R-E-T-T syndrome. I had never heard of it ever. And it's a, a degradation. Uh, it's, a, it's a breakdown of the X chromosome during conception. And so neither parent has this, um, but it, it's a breakdown. And, and my feeling is it's the toxins and everything that we are living, having these children breathe and move, you know, be in. And, um, and she grew, she was conceived during the San Francisco fires and she was born during the San Francisco fires. So she's just, you know, it lived in a place that's been very, very toxic. Um, and it's a break in the gene and she's normal you know, she was pretty normal till 14 months and then they start degrading and they can't speak and they can't swallow and they're on feeding tubes in a wheelchair um, and can't speak on walk. And so we're trying to, and if anybody out there has suggestions or ideas, we're trying to get underneath of it and try to see how much we can support her gut uh, so that she can produce the neurotransmitters and help her neuronal development in her brain because the brain stops developing. Mm-hmm. And we need to figure out, you know, obviously conventional medicine is working on gene splicing and um, different kinds of medications to try to get that, that the, the weakness done. But my hope is that we can get the gut to be the leader and doing, you know, good antioxidants and, you know, glutathione, alpha lipoic acid and, and CoQ10 and, uh, she's getting cranial sacral and acupuncture and all the things that I would do for an animal, mm-hmm. you know, um, we're trying to do for her. Good. So, well, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm hopeful too. But if anyone out there has, knows people that are doing something, I would appreciate, um, you know, collaborating with anyone on, on those issues. You bet. So you have an associate that's in the clinic. Yeah. Uh, and I'm looking for another associate. So How's that going? out there. Yeah. It's very hard. It's yeah. very hard because, you know, to get somebody who uh, wants to learn more, 
mm-hmm. who is who's challenged by uh, their knowledge and wants to understand more about integrative medicine. And that's why you know the College of Integrative Medicine, the Chi Institute, and IVIS, and all these groups that are educating. Um, we need more of that because once these veterinarians, once you've opened, you put the veil up and you took your acupuncture course, oh my God, I need to know homeopathy. I need to know chiropractic and I need to know these herbs and and I need to understand what ozone does. And so it's like this, each time you open another door, you want to find uh, another way to save that dog or that cat. And understand why, you know, when you, another option versus euthanasia. It is so easy for veterinarians to euthanize an animal. Yeah. It is not so easy for them to challenge their brain, read about stuff, find, even find another drug. You know, vets don't even have time to do that. You know, let alone go study acupuncture for two years or, or study homeopathy for two years. But you need to do that. If you want to, you know, feel like you've done as much as you can and with, you know, with, you know, uh, with the compassion fatigue that veterinarians get, having these other tools gives you so many other choices to do stuff. And, you know, you then you feel like, I tried, I tried all the things. I just didn't give up, you know, in that first, what do you think you can do? And you go, I can't think of anything. Well, you know, that's scary because yeah. I wouldn't want that happening to my granddaughter or to anyone in my family. Right. Hey, I, wanted, I did want to ask you, you took your chiropractic training at Tufts. And as I recall, that was a pretty short-lived program, but right. um, refresh me on who taught that course and what was it like for you? Well, it was, um, it was taught by, um, let's see, it was, oh, what's his name? Uh, Hess, Brian Hess, was it? Brian? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian, yeah. He did the anatomy and the physiology. Um, uh, who else was there? I think, was Judith there? Judith Shoemaker was there, I think. Uh, um Oh, what's her name? Um, oh gosh, from uh, from Ocala. Um, oh, color Peggy Fleming. Peggy Fleming. Yeah. yeah, she taught it. Um, let's see, there was two or three other people that were involved in teaching it, and it was actually really good. Um, it didn't get certified, um, mm-hmm. but what it made me realize it, it it you know I had an understanding of chiropractic because I had been going to a chiropractor since I was like twelve. Yeah. So I had you know, and it and a chiropractic has completely evolved. I mean, it used to be wham, slam, take your neck and turn it around in different, different places. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the person that I use now is Dr. Ann Crowshaw and Jennifer Chong. They have a practice here in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ann Crowshaw is so amazing. She has developed a whole technique of using applied kinesiology. Um, it's her own technique that she developed from before she went into chiropractic school and she does animals and if this can inspire her to teach, she's got to teach. She just moved down close to Reddick in near, um, uh, you know, dear, near Dr. Shea. But if somebody yeah. can get her to teach her techniques, it to me is the most impressive. And I've seen a lot of techniques. She uses applied kinesiology, mm-hmm. muscle tests, and then with two pounds of pressure with an activator is able to manipulate the, the structure. So, you know, I learned with all this pushing and prying and dirtying and that, you know, and all this. And she just does pop, 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 done, out the door. It, and so it'll save veterinarians' backs. It'll yeah. save their, you know, their, it'll just, it's, it's real. And I, I've studied with her and she's just so much better than I am that I just send them to her, you know, and just send them over and they do it for me and come back. <laughs> so that's good. she's just so good. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. All right. I'm, on, I'm marking that name down. Yes. Uh, uh, Ann Crowshaw. She's amazing. Good. So. Good. 
All right. You're going to do a couple of webinars for CIVT. Okay. Yes. You got coming up. We're going to do uh, ozone and microbiome. Right. Yeah. And uh, excited about that. Um, you know, for all of you out there, the oxidative therapies are so easy to do, as is the microbiome. You really, there's a very, very small learning curve for both of them. And, you know, when you look at ozone and what it can provide, and uh, the um, O3 vets just did a uh, day uh, summit on May 1st, 2021, which is a few days ago, and people can get that recording. And it was very well done and a uh, lot of good information on cancer with ozone, uh, on the pharmacology and the biochemistry of ozone. So I really recommend people linking up to that and getting that, getting that, a more thorough view of that component. Uh, Chi Institute has, has recorded about 10 hours of my time uh, to introduce the ozone uh, therapy to veterinarians. Um, CVT, I, I, at this point, you know, we have some on uh, earlier ones I did for CIVT, um, but for people to learn it, they you can learn ozone uh, on an online visual. You don't need to put hands on in a wet lab because most veterinarians can do all the different procedures that we do with ozone. We all know how to give sub-Q fluids. We all know how to, well, not all of us know how to inject joints, but you know we can learn joints, ejections. Um, you know, we can do ear insufflation. We can do rectal insufflation. There's all, they're so, they're so adaptable to uh, any, any uh, practice. But a big thing is dentistry. And I am on a mission to scream this very loudly to anyone who uses antibiotics during dentistry. They don't need it, okay? Mm -hmm. And with the 700,000 people that die every year in our country, not in, our, in the world, from resistance to antibiotics, Using antibiotics for dentistry when you have not cultured out what you're doing uh, is not good medicine. Um, you don't even know what you're doing. You're just putting them on clindamycin or clavamox or whatever. I haven't used antibiotics for dentists, dentistry in 25 years. Yeah. I mean, and I don't have a problem, but I flush the pockets now with ozone. I flush the mouth with ozonated water before we start. We put it in a cavitron. We use it to get rid of the. And besides cleaning the mouth, when you use a Cavitron, we all know now about aerosolization because of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. We all know that this is all over the place. You're blasting all this biofilm in that dog's mouth all over your clinic. So by putting ozone in it, you're going to kill the biofilm and reduce the amount of bacteria that's being you know, aerosoled. So it's a safety issue for your staff and yourself, as well as it cleans the mouth. And my mother... I got her an ozone generator about nine years ago, and she puts it in her water pick. Uh -huh. And when, before COVID started in January to 2020, I said, Mom, you got to do this every day because I can't take care of you if you get sick. Yeah. And so she was drinking ozone water and putting it in her Cavitron. And two months later, she, and she was doing it every day, went to her dentist, and the hygienist came out of her mouth and said, in my career, I have never seen anybody 91 years old with the healthiest gums. Uh -huh. What are you doing? She said, I do ozone. She said, I never heard of that. I said, oh, yeah, I do ozone. <laughs> so she's almost like a, you know, a, you know, a, a salesman for ozone. But she just, she says it's the fountain of youth. She says she drinks it. She feels, because it's like oxygen, you're drinking oxygen. It's 97% oxygen and 3% yeah. ozone. So it's just a really wonderful thing. Oh, good for her. Good yeah. for her. Well, thanks so much for your time. It was great talking oh, to you. You're welcome. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm hoping you can, uh, other people listening to this can uh, realize it's a, it's a struggle. You know, it's not so hard, as hard as it was to get into vet school when I, we were all applying. It was very, very hard to get in. 
Um, yeah. And but y- if you see something and it works, say something, right? Yeah. Don't just sit there and say, "Okay, I'm not going to mention it to anybody about this because it's too many animals and too many people suffer." And if we have solutions or things that can help, um, and we need to 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 have uh, share those things with others. Perfect. Thanks, Margot. Okay. Hope to see you soon. Okay, take All care. Right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.